I'll say again, good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming out today. This is the book launch for a new Molly Murphy. All it is hidden, written by Reese Bowen and her daughter Claire Boyle. And this is their second collaboration, right? It is. But soon it's only going to be Claire. Yeah. Right? Soon? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually stepping back with each book until I can say, okay, it's all yours. But meantime, yeah. it is a collaborative yeah. effort. Yeah. Right, John, we don't have any microphones, so. Well, then you speak more loudly. All right, we will project, <laughs> we will project a little more. Is that better? Right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, we haven't quite mastered this space because it's new, but our impression was that we didn't, we don't actually have a great way to hook up the sound system. So can all of you hear me in the back? We're okay? Yeah. All right. yeah, please, if you, if you can't hear, just raise your hand a bit and we will project towards you a bit more. Okay, right. Yeah. So um, we do have another author coming in this afternoon, Tara Black, in her wonderful new book, Night Flight to Paris. And she's on an afternoon flight to Phoenix as we speak. Yes. Or has she landed? She just landed already. I think she oh, just before lunch. So okay. she should be here soon. So we have some lovely um, cookies provided by Reese that are Patrick's Day and Feeling. And we have plenty of Prosecco. So we're going to serve that between events. And if you can't stay, you can take some with you as you head out, however it works for you. But anyway, um, so Tammany Hall. I love the way that you guys delve into Tammany Hall. So you're bringing a lot of real history into this, aren't you? I mean, not that Reese always didn't, but. Yeah. I think that's what's fun about this series is that, you, you know, the real history, if you're writing a place, if you're setting a thing in a real time and place, then the real history would be there. You know, if, if Molly walks down a certain street on a day and there's a blizzard, she should know about it, you know? So, in this book, um, Claire is the one who's the researcher right now. She's been reading the New York Times for every day that we... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, have you all met Claire? This is, Hi. This is my collaborator. In fact, when, when we did our first book together last year, uh, a radio interviewer said, so how did you two happen to meet her? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I made her. <laughs> so anyway, Claire... Um, before we did this, was reading the New York Times. And the thing with the New York Times in those days, journalism now, as you know, is the fact, the fact, the fact. In those days, it was really um, embroidered prose, wasn't it, etc. And Claire found some really fun little stories as well as some big stories. So take it away and tell how, how they became part of this book. So um, one story was about a, a very exciting and terrifying fire on the Hudson um, with uh, a boat had caught fire with passengers on it and they tried to, um, they came up to a dock and they couldn't make fast on the dock and they had to go down to another dock and they described uh, people being thrown overboard to avoid being burned up and so we decided to take that scene and to put our characters into the middle of it and, um, and also um, William Randolph Hearst was joining with the Republican Party to try to unseat Tammany Hall right at that time. And so we again decided to put our characters in, in the middle of that fight. Um, although as a reader, I hope you don't quite know what side they're on maybe until the end or how they've gotten involved in all of that. There's a third one too. The book starts off with a prologue, and as you read it, you would think, what on earth does this have to do with the story? But there is a clever twist at the yeah, end, yeah. you see. And, and what, this was another story that Claire found, was that there'd been um, a, a mailbag on a train. Had, normally, they were thrown onto the train and were supposed to hook on. This had, had somehow, something had gone wrong, and so letters were strewn across the track. And so we thought, well, what if one of those letters doesn't get to the right person. And that's, that was that. that, was that. that but, yeah. but So Tammany Hall, um, it's interesting because when we first, are you all familiar with Molly Murphy? Is everyone, mm -hmm. is anyone yes. here would like to, like to be caught up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we first met Molly Murphy, which was in, in, in 2001. 1901. On my first book, was 2001, 2001, and it was 1901. Yeah. Um, Molly has fled from France, from 
my brain Molly has fled, fled from Ireland um, for reasons that you have to read the first book to find out why. But anyway, she's, run, she's running for her life. And she gets as far as Ellis Island. And it's the new Ellis Island, the brick one, that's just been built because the other one just burned down. So she gets to Ellis Island. And while she's there, a murder occurs. And she is using an assumed name. And the name she's using shows up as the prime suspect. So in the first book, Molly is literally friendless, penniless, running for her life in a, a city where she knows nobody. Fast forward 19 books, and here she is, and she's nicely settled. She's a happy, happy wife and mother. She lives in a nice little house with friends across the street. And now in this book, suddenly, she finds herself living in a grand house on Fifth Avenue. How can that have happened? And why is she not happy about it? Claire, tell us. <laughs> well, um, we have always known. Uh, so Daniel, who at the beginning of the book was dubbed Daniel the Deceiver, uh, then turned into a very, uh, sorry, at the beginning of the series, and then turned into a very nice guy and kind of a wonderful husband. But um, he, he has decided to run on the Tammany Clippers. And um, as a little perk of the running has been given the use of this house on Fifth Avenue. And of course, as you can imagine, Molly is uh, surprised to be taken away from her own life. And also everything she knows about Tammany Hall is that uh, if they do a favor for you, you have to do a favor for them. And she wonders what Daniel is gonna be asked to do in return for their patronage. And she's afraid he's gotten himself in over his head. Right, but we know better. But why didn't you, <laughs> you tell us the interesting job that he's running for a position? Because it isn't anything that you would immediately think of. Um, so he's running for sheriff, which of course in our minds brings, you know, wild, the Wild West, the sheriff, but the sheriff of New York. Um, the county of New York. The county of yeah. New York. Yeah. Would so all of the boroughs, it, it, it's a big, big position, and it, it oversees things like the docks and um, the uh, jail. The, the jail, yeah. And so it's it's a very uh, important position, and obviously Tammany Hall would like to have complete control of that still. I'm sure they do at the moment, but they would like to keep it. Yes, and also um, the sheriff can have a lot of influence over guarding ballot boxes, where they get placed, and who gets to vote in them. <laughs> So that is, it's an important job for Tammany in that way too. Yeah. To well, you do need to keep, the, keep it separate because sheriffs are sheriffs in counties and police forces mm -hmm. are cities mm -hmm. and yeah. towns. One yeah. of the, I think, only contiguous county and city in the United States where the chief of police and the sheriff are both equal in San Francisco. It's just, it got set up that way. We are in Maricopa County, who of us can forget Joe or Ohio? <laughs> um, but we also have individual police forces in Scottsdale, in Phoenix, you know, whatever. So I, I guess I never really, I, even I was really surprised to realize that yeah. Daniel could run for sheriff yeah. of the county. Yeah. Um, and it, that was a deep dive of research when we were thinking, you know, what, what would he have to do? Because our, we want him to have something to do with Tammany Hall. What could he have to do? So some of the amazing things that we found were actual Tammany bosses. And, and a character in the book who is the big boss, Big Bill, is an amalgam of various Tammany bosses that we found. One of whom had a desk that had a drawer that went both ways so that you could slide it towards the person, they could put their bribe in it, and you could slide it towards yourself, and then they would take the bribe out. Um, but they really, like like you sort of see in mafia movies sometimes, they, they were the bad guys, but they were, in other ways, they were the champions of some of the poorest people who came. So they might require their kickbacks, and they might uh, even descend to some murder in, at times, but they also um, might get someone out of the tenements or make sure that a widow had food or make sure that her grown son had a job. So I think if you had asked them, they would have seen themselves as the good guys fighting against a system that when they arrived said no Irish need apply and mm -hmm. creating their own system by which um, an Irish person could 
and could have a chance. And I was surprised to find an Irish person or an Italian person or other immigrants. They didn't only um, help Irish people, but they wanted everyone's patronage. So if you would be loyal to them, they'd be loyal to you. Wasn't Boss Weed the most famous one? I grew up in the Chicago political machine, which was a but New York, and it's not yet dead. I'll never forget going back a few years ago, going through the Richard Daly Airport, and I thought, I thought he died. I thought he died a long time ago, and then I realized that it was like a family thing, you know, yeah, where, you, yeah. where you passed it on. But when when did it start? When can we all really come into power in New York? Well, it started really to, 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 to help. Yeah, I mean, it started to help, you know, the poorest of the poor and, and, and help the Irish together. We need to band together, you know, because we were the outsiders. So, right, but um, did it start in like the 70s, you're getting some sort of representation. Yeah, I, yeah. I think of them as gilded age. You yeah, know, yeah. They were, yeah. <laughs> well, definitely the 1880s and 90s, yeah. they, were, they were quite I powerful. googled it. It started in 1789. Really? Oh, wow. That's very interesting. I just, so, yeah. sorry, but I, I was no curious. Idea were, I, I had no idea either. <laughs> the Order of St. Tammany. Tammany. Oh, yeah. the Order of St. Tammany. Yeah. 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 Your political organization started in 1780. 86 and incorporated on May 12, 
historical novels. You read a novel sometimes, and you went, especially England, which I know. No, he wouldn't have spent five shillings on that. You know, that's um, you have to get it right. Do you remember Sanderton? Many of you yeah. are Sanderton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which was about real estate development, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Right. The guy with his 180,000 pounds that King didn't own 180,000 <laughs> no, pounds. Right. They clearly did not do their research. No, no, Nobody no. had that kind of money. Yeah. It was enormous yeah. if you had a couple yeah. of thousand pounds yeah. a year. 10 was an yeah. absolute fortune. Oh, well, that was Mr. Darcy, right? Yeah. Mr. Darcy had 10,000 a year. Yes. Even Mr. Mitchie had 5,000 a year. <laughs> and said, you know, he gave his, his butler five pounds to go and get a meal, and I thought, he's living for most of the year on that. So, yeah, we have done our research, and of course, Claire now is meticulous, and she reads the New York Times, and she finds all these wonderful <coughs> things that we have to put it. Tell them about that. <laughs> so, our, one of our favorite ones ever is uh, describing a proceeding where uh, one man is suing another man for the alienation of his wife's affection. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he says that, that that man has stolen his wife away. And, and the man, it, the, it describes the accused man, Natalie, twirling his mustache <laughs> and saying that if the other man couldn't keep his wife, he didn't deserve to have her. <laughs> yeah, was, it, was it his fault that he was so much more attractive? <laughs> <laughs> None of that held up in court these days, would it? <laughs> you have 
someone have down in a root cellar or put away, well, what would the store have canned? Because you couldn't, you know, <coughs> in the middle of winter, you can't have fresh berries coming out. No, I mean, people would, if they had a, a property, they would preserve for the winter in, in jars. It's very interesting because we do lots of research and some things you know are true but you cannot use them in the book because the reader, it would take the reader out of the time and place. And there's, I have, uh, we both have books of pictures, photographs of New York in 1900. And the Macy's food counter, the center of the display is a, uh, a stack of cans of chili con carne. <laughs> now I can tell you, if, if we said, Molly opened a can of chili con carne, we would get letters saying, don't be so ridiculous. And yet we know it's true, but we can't use it. Yeah. Yeah. So Molly's on a quest for meat in this book because the terrible Italian cook, <laughs> she can actually make, sorry, the cook who, although she's Italian, <laughs> she's a terrible cook, she can make his pasta. Yeah. So, you know, Molly is not, and because the meals somehow, when you sit down for them and when they're prepared, don't coincide well, the pasta is cold and it's lumpy, that's not very good. So Molly spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to actually acquire yeah, meat, yeah, right? Yeah, the teacher had to cook something decent, yeah. But they're getting an allowance because Daniel, in order to run for sheriff, has had to resign his oh. job at the police department. So the only income they have is being given to them, right? Yeah, yeah. And doled out by who? Mary the maid? Finn. 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 Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, he's like the right-hand man of the bad, the big the big boss. Right, so they yeah. also have a bodyguard, don't they? They do. Yeah. Is, is yeah. The That's girl. another thing Molly doesn't like is if she goes out, a large burly Irishman appears to walk behind her <laughs> because now he's running for sheriff. He's mm -hmm. fair game. So she suddenly realizes this is a world, it is not a world of privilege only, it's a world of danger. And, and I think any of us would not like to be in that situation. I mean, she perhaps has more money than she's had before, but it's so uncertain. Someone is paying the sermon, servants, someone maybe giving her allowance, but it's not like getting a paycheck every other week or something for Daniel. She sort of thinks, what is gonna happen this week? Well, what happens if next week they don't give the allowance? How do we pay for this house and these servants? She's a very practical person. She doesn't like to have things up in the air or be beholden to people. Yeah, and the other thing too with the servants is, who are the servants reporting to? You know, is she being watched mm -hmm. all the time? If she, anytime she meets someone, if there's any sort of conversation, are the servants listening and reporting back to Big Bill? So all the time you feel that you're in you're in a little glass house, don't you? But she makes a friend um, because Brighty makes a friend. So yeah. that was really nice. And you you have a background in school. Right? I do. I'm a teacher. So I could tell that yeah. that came into play <laughs> in this book. So. Yeah. The person who has the biggest problem really is Bridie, isn't it, when this whole thing gets going? Uh, yes, well, she's at a new school, which um, is great for her educationally. But um, I do have some experience with this because I'm a teacher, my husband's a teacher, but our, our uh, kids were able to go to prep school, but a school he teaches at and then the next door school. But sometimes it can be hard when you're used to Sort of living a teacher's life and except for example at my daughter's school you know they had a four-day weekend always for the ski weekend and you know people do go in summer in europe and and the other kids sometimes had different experiences than what our kids would have grown up with or if they went over to play at their houses or hang out at their houses it's a huge mansion and so Bridie's experiencing that, I think more so than, than my kids, because you know we, we grew up closer to that, but she grew up in tenements, very poor, and now here are these girls that won't go anywhere without their maids, that are dressing up to look like little versions of their fashion plate <coughs> moms, and um, she doesn't know how to relate to them. And of course, you know girls of that age, 12, 13, they're very predatory and they're very cliquey. And so if there's someone among them who clearly doesn't belong, and not only that, but she's very smart, so the teachers like her, and she wants to learn. You know, they don't want to learn, they want to get through school and find a rich husband, and that's that. Um, and so Bridie, they're picking on Bridie all the time. And they're finding little niggling things like, you know, oh, well, that's what you're wearing, you know, that sort of thing the whole time. So Bridie is a little bit miserable in school. 
and then until <laughs> there's a fire on a boat and things change, don't they? We can't tell you too much. Yes, we shouldn't tell you too much. But I would say it's um, Bridie, although she's not Molly's biological daughter, I think she's she's learned a lot about bravery through her experiences and she definitely shows that. And I think that will break through that sort of uh, fake status of having having money or fashion. I think real bravery and friendship will break break down those barriers. Yeah. And I mean, one of the main story themes going through this is how, how you deal with a teenage daughter, you know, who was been like a sweet, compliant little girl, and now suddenly wants to prove herself, wants to show she's grown up. I don't need you, I can do this. You know, all the things that every mother of a teenager has been through. So we know about that, don't yes, we? Yes, yes. Except you were perfect teenager. So somewhere in this book, there's an actual crime. Yeah. which we can't really talk to you too much about, but there is a crime, and there's a particular kind of interesting crime we don't get to see too often. There's a locker room mystery yeah. that comes into play yeah. towards the end, but yeah. we're not going to tell you any more than that. But in the case you thought this was just, you know, yeah. hanging out in New York with no. Molly, it's <laughs> no more than that. One of the reasons for this was we thought it'd be fun to write a locker room mystery, didn't we? That was one of the first things we knew before we yeah. did anything uh, else. Yeah. Now describe what the locker room mystery, because I embarrassed the author of The Golden Spoon. There's a whole piece over there. Yeah. Many people say they're writing or reading locker room mysteries, and that is not correct. Um, there, it's a very specific kind of plot. Yeah. yeah. Well, for one thing, the room is locked, and there is no way in. And um, or out. Or out, <laughs> and the, the corpse is lying there with them, uh, no clear indication of how they were killed. Yeah, or how the person who killed them got out of the room after they killed them. Yeah. Mm. So it's called an impossible crime. Yeah. And the whole thrust of, of a book that has an impossible crime is how. Yeah. It's not who did it, it's not why it happened, yeah. but the whole point yeah. is that the author is analyzing you readers yeah the how of it, the mechanics of it. There's an author called John Dixon Carr who made a oh, career yeah, out of writing locker room yeah, mysteries, yeah. and they've been written by Reginald Hill and Peter Lovesey, and yeah. you know, it's a sort of one-off to see yeah. if, if they yeah. could actually do it. But don't confuse that with like an Agatha Christie country house murder, you know, where, <laughs> or Neuro Wolf. There's a great Neuro Wolf novel when everybody's in a banquet hall. Yeah. And the only people who could be involved in the murder are the people who were yeah. sitting at the table or the servers. So, in other words, you have the crime in a in a place where only X number of people can be involved, and that's completely different than a locker room mystery. But people confuse it all the time. Was the murder murder of Roger Ackroyd? Was that a locked room? Feel no, like it that was a totally unreliable narrative. It was a I know that, but, but I'm wondering if it also it. was. I, I feel like what it looked like from the outside when yeah. the way the narrator yeah. presented it was that the room was locked and that no one could have yeah. gone in and out. She did mm -hmm. do she did two that were locked rooms. I think she did. She right. did the one yeah. with the, the pig splatter. Yes, and the um, the gramophone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And there's a Marjorie Allingham only yeah. it's like a locked bridge mystery yeah. that's even more complicated, which I might add has been repeated by an author coming to see us fairly soon who I'm pretty sure thinks he has an original plot. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say to him, aha, I knew right away what was happening because I read Marjorie Allingham. Yeah. There are even there are locked room riddles and jokes too. One of one of the silliest ones is that uh, the murderer took a piece of paper, cut it in half, two halves make a hole, and he crawled out through the hole. Yeah, we should say that it takes a very brilliant writer to write a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of effort to actually the mechanics of yeah. the crime. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. <clears throat> and you also have to make sure it works. Um, because yeah. nothing is numbered than to set one up and then yeah, you know, how, it can't be done. How, how, how long do we get out Which one of you did the mechanics or was it a joke? We talked, we we talked, talked through, most, through most things, yeah. nearly all the scenes we talked through before we write. You know, we um, it's a very sort of organic process. We don't say, you do this and I do that. She's done more research than me because, um, as you know, I write two more books a year, so I'm pretty busy. But. Um, we talk through, so we talk the plot ahead a bit, and we bounce <coughs> ideas off each other, 
and then I say, well, I'll do this scene, and she says, well, I'll do this scene, and we swap scenes, so they, they mesh together. And by the time we finished, I really can't, we can't tell you who wrote which. No. We just, you know, because we were very nice. Here. So Claire, when you came into this, you were um, entering into a world that was already, did you get it? Good girl. So you, you actually stepped into a universe that your mom had already created. So yes. you, you don't have a lot of license for world building, although you can go forward and things will keep changing. That's right. And that was really important to me to stay with the world exactly as it was and to be very true to the character. So I didn't just read the first 17 books, but I, I took notes and I made a Bible, sort of a Molly Bible, and... and um, uh, got some, you know how you can make yourself a little avatar. I made a little avatar of Molly and Daniel and some of the characters so I could quickly refer to like, oh, there's Sid, there's Gus. Like that's my picture of them in my mind and keep close to the, yeah. how they had yeah. been. In fact, when Claire came to me and said she would like to um, write the series with me because I put it on hold because <laughs> simply I didn't have enough time to do three books. I mean, it's crazy enough to do two and a half, but three, very crazy. Um, so, you know, I was slightly hesitant because I wondered how much hand-holding I'd have to do to start with, but literally she picked up Molly's voice and she sort of hit the ground running. <coughs> Great ideas and we just went straight ahead, didn't we? It's, it's very fun. I mean, who hasn't wanted to write fan fiction, right? I mean, it's fan, I get to write fan fiction in the Molly Murphy yeah. world and move, help move the characters forward. Yeah. Well, another thing, too, is writing is a very lonely profession. You know, you sit in your room and you write, and at the end of it, you, your editor looks at it, and then you get some feedback. But we bounce ideas off each other every day, so we've got this great excuse. My husband will say, who are you talking to? And I'd say, yeah. <laughs> and she, he said, but you spoke. It goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, it's and all, on. <laughs> it's all work. I'm on the other end yeah. of you. <laughs> it's all work. So if we have to meet in a nice restaurant, discuss something. That's right. We're, we're, doing, we're do working that. really That's hard. Right. Yeah. You know, you husbands have a defense. You couldn't start collaborating and writing your own book. <laughs> 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 Yeah, he wouldn't be here. No, absolutely. Fantastic. So, you know, historical accidents. 
Yeah. Right, so are you thinking ahead to a new Molly Murphy, book 20? Well, we finished, we finished the first draft of book 20, book 20. and oh. we're, we're setting it in the Catskills, oh. which is really interesting. It's a time when, um, uh, you know, anybody who had money in New York would get out for the summer because of the heat and because of disease. <coughs> But if you were Jewish, even if you were a lawyer, if you were very respected, if you had a lot of money, the normal resorts were not, would not, were not welcome. So uh, families started going up to small farmers in the Catskills, would build a few little cottages, and families would go up for the summer, and the family would stay there, the husband would come up and down at the weekends. And that was the beginning of the bungalow colonies up there, right. which was, was predated all the hotels. <coughs> and in our book, we have someone who is with the idea of building the first hotel. So I love that. It right. became the Bourse Circuit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because there were, um, in, I guess it was in what, the 20s or 30s? The 20s was the height of yeah. yeah. um, Yes, there yeah. were yeah. all yeah. kinds of comedians and yeah. other yeah. people went up to <coughs> provide entertainment at the <coughs> oh, hotels. The top names, you, you know, yeah. you name any of them, Milton Berle and, right. and all, all of those people were there. Cut their teeth on the horse. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't cut your teeth on the But no, huge hotels. I mean, grossing us of those, you know, they had right. a thousand rooms right. and swimming pools and dance halls yeah. and fantastic entertainment. So we're at the very beginning where people sit around the campfire at night. You know, that's yeah. that's the entertainment. And and it was a way, even for families with very modest means from the Lower East Side, to, to get out of the heat for a little while because they could either go up to family that ran sort of, um, uh, it was mostly like chickens and milk farm up in the Catskills and just, you know, stay in a, a cabin for a yeah. little while. Or they could rent one very economically. So people, it wasn't just for very wealthy people that could go up right. and get out of the And with the heat came a lot of disease too. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, when I was a child, we were, for example, I was not allowed to go to the beach because of polio. Um, yeah. I could have went there because Lake Michigan was so cold, no germ could survive. But um, <laughs> I remember um, my grandmother wanted to take me on a trip. We were going to end up in Boston, and my mother wouldn't let me go because they were having a polio mm -hmm. epidemic. Dr. Yeah. Salt, well, he was making 56, is that what yeah. the salt back then? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. but you know, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, cool. that kind of disease could be running rampant. Yeah, it was typhoid, mainly. Typhoid and cholera. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because of, you know, poor sanitation. actually have one from Mary Garrett online yeah. and she has a nice comment she says such a exercise and trust in taking chances and I think she has that in regards to Molly and Daniel doing Tammany Hall mm -hmm. but I think it's also a great question in terms of your relationship of giving uh, Claire the reins of Molly Murphy mm -hmm. and so what was that like and and starting to let loose of the reins and trust her um. I think, well, it, for me, it's been a delight from day one because, um, you know, having someone to share a writing experience with is, is really nice. And, and as I say, she came up with good ideas to start with. She got Molly's voice to start with. And um, so, you know, with the first book, I think we probably did 50-50 of it. Mm -hmm. But then this, the second book, um, you said, well, well, you know, you've got another book you need to start. I can see the end of it now. You just took it, didn't you? Yeah. And um, yeah, that's really nice. 
She's a good writer. I always knew she was a good writer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Have you always wanted to be a writer because of your mother? Or just... I've always enjoyed writing. I think it was a bit daunting to think about doing a novel. I mean, I knew she did novels all the time. I would mostly do some little funny skits and stuff for my family and some poetry. I, I was a double major in biology and English literature, and I remember for an organic chemistry class writing a, a poem for my professor that the naming of molecules is a difficult matter. It isn't just one of your holiday games. Now, you may say I'm mad as a hatter when I say each organic compound has three names. <laughs> and then he, in, in, his, uh, in his response, he suggested that I probably was a better English major than... <laughs> Speaking about that, do you have to? I know that we had a another local writer who was a teacher, an English teacher, and he had to get clearance from the school board. Did you have to get any clearance for all that is hidden? No, it never even occurred to me. They're very supportive, in fact. But I wonder why you would have to get. What you do in your spare time has nothing to do with. It was Mesa Public Schools. Yeah, they they had to read his books and. Approve it before they. No, they were Kevin Hearn's novels. Kevin Hearn's first three books had to get clearance from the Mesa School District before he could get them published to make sure there wasn't anything that would. Yes, or not just on his school, but just in general, that would rile the parents up. insulter, 
that's fine. <laughs> or, and, and if you're laughing at yourself mainly, mm -hmm. it's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're picking on one ethnic group, obviously that would not be fine. But the no, but what I find the most annoying is that they want the author to be the person in the book. You know, it's not okay if you're a guy to write a woman. Yeah. It's not okay, you know, yeah. if you're, yeah. if you're yeah. not gay, you can't write gay. If you're, you know, different race, you can't do that at all. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the whole point of fiction is is to take you readers into yeah. different worlds and yeah. explore them. Donna Hellerman could not be published today writing the Navajo, the Dobie Horn, the Turk. Right. There's no way that anybody would let him write those books today. Yeah. And yet, you know, they, they're wonderful. And a window the Navajo into a Well, and there weren't any any Navajo writing mysteries no. at the time that Tony wrote them, so there was no competing voice. Mm -hmm. And part of the pressure right now is is they don't want an author to deprive a quote real author of the chance to write. But you know, yeah, again, especially the mystery form is not native to many cultures. It's basically an American and an English construct. Yeah. But now it's gone global, and so yeah. you know now there are mysteries written in Japan and you yeah. know all yeah. over the world, yeah. and yeah. it's a whole different thing. Yeah. But I do think you can go back and judge people who yeah. you know. We've had to be quite careful with writing in the Catskills. Obviously, we're setting it in mm -hmm. a Jewish community, right? But we have to make very sure that we're seeing it through the eyes of Molly, the outsider, and so she is observing rather than sort of saying, well, this is what we're all doing. You know, what, what would Molly see if she was an outsider sitting here right. and watching this thing happening? So, you know, and we also, I have a very close friend um, in New York who is from a very upper-class Jewish family, and we gave it to her and said, go through the whole thing, and she was wonderful. She would say, well, if this family was of this class, they wouldn't use this word, they'd use this word. So, yeah, you know, so, so, so I think we can say, if anybody says we'll say it's all right. Yeah, I mean, she, obviously people uh, are not monolithic, and so one Jewish family's experience wouldn't be somebody, or another Jewish family's experience, but we've run it by someone who really knows and and uh, tried to write it as authentically as we yeah. can. When I said to her to start with, I'm writing, the, we're setting this in the Catskills, I'm going to bounce it off you, she said, well, I do know Grosica's grandson. I'm like, well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. Anybody else have yeah. a question? Yes. When you started with Molly, did you always kind of know her trajectory or not? Or is she just evolved? She just keeps evolving for you. I have to tell you, I wrote the first book where she's um, uh, she's charged with a murder on Ellis Island, and then she steps ashore in Manhattan. And I thought, what have I done? I know nothing about I know nothing about New York in 1901. And of course, the publisher says, well, this is a series, isn't it? You go. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> then you think, oh, I thought I have condemned myself to research on every page for the rest of my life. And that's pretty much what it's turned out to be, except it, the research has turned out to be the joy because you find so many mm -hmm. interesting things. Your I mean, research is wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. My grandparents came to Ellis Island, so I can now see, I see it through their eyes. Well, you know, I've always, in the early books, I would go to New York, and anywhere that Molly walked, I would walk. And I think, you know, do you get the wind straight off the Hudson when you turn this corner? Um, do you, can you see the spire of this church when you, and I would do this with all the books. And I had people write to me and say, you said Molly walked from A to B, that's ridiculous. It's way too far. And I went, I did. You know, she drove from the west coast of Ireland. She thought nothing of walking five miles. And I know once I was, I was at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art and I was staying with a friend on 23rd Street the street, the traffic was terrible. I thought I'd just walk. So, you know, I walked all the way down and there it was. So, you know, that's good. And I think research has gotten so much easier too since you started yeah. because uh, of the internet. I mean, when we were looking at the Catskills, there still is a Catskills train that goes from the river into to the Catskills. So I could get on YouTube and look at ride the Catskills train and there's someone on a camera going through the whole thing. So, you know, I spent 45 minutes watching the ride that Molly would take, you know, that's really helpful. Yeah, what I found was that 1900, 1901 was the age of the brownie camera. And so there are so many uh, ordinary people taking snapshots suddenly that I could find pretty much any street in New York and I could see what was the name of the tailor what was on the billboard, what was the restaurant, you know, I, so I could 
And I have had, I think the nicest thing is, I had a letter once from a, like two things. One was a man who said to me, I want you to know I'm living in Molly's house. Oh. And um, oh. he sent me pictures of the interior and the garden and the exterior and everything. And then I had one saying, thank you for taking me back to my childhood. I was born in that part of Greenwich Village. My mother was born there and my grandmother was born there. And my grandmother used to get her bread at that bakery. You know, then you know you've done a good job when someone who lives there doesn't say, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. So yeah, it, it is worth, it's very satisfying when someone says that. And the, the deli that they talk about getting their meat yeah. is in this book, is yeah. an actual, yeah, it is. Yeah. We did everything like that. We try to make it as correct as possible. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I read my first Molly Lecture last March. Yes. Loved it so much, having grown up in New York. Um, I, I think that was the side story that mm -hmm. attracted me so much. And I read every book, one after another. <laughs> I kept Thank saying, you. I'm going to take a break and read something. <laughs> And lo and behold, I read another Molly Merchant. <laughs> so I finished them all. <laughs> and they were wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yes. Not well, always in just in New York. No, 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 no. I, I mean, yeah. I live in, I have a home in Connecticut yeah. now. Um, mm -hmm. But I, we, we, our family was in White Plains and Westchester. Oh, well, and yes. so when she went there, yeah, it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I spent most of my adult life in Buffalo, New York, so yeah. when you wrote about yeah, the 1901 yeah. Exposition, oh, right. yeah. I knew all about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. I mean, when I wrote that, that was way before the internet, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I couldn't do it, but I had all of the plans of it, and so, you know, how would she walk from this pavilion to this pavilion and things, so, you know, you have to, you do what you can. So what's going on with Lady Georgie? <laughs> Lady Georgie, yeah, we're up to, we're getting up there too, and Lady Georgie's book 16. Um, so the next book coming out is called The Proof of the Pudding, and um, it takes place in a mansion that has a poison garden. And um, there are several places in England that do have a poison garden. And the one I like to visit is in, in London, there's something called the Physic Garden that has been there since the 1500s. It used to be a monastery garden. And you have a bed where all the plants are good for the heart and all the plants are good for the stomach and everything. And then there's a section that is the poison section. And um, when Louise Penny and I are in London together, that's a place we always have to go because they have a really good lunch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no poison So this is a banquet at a house. And again, it's a fun thing to write. A banquet at a house with a poison garden. And certain people are taken ill afterwards, mm. but they all have the same thing. So, it, you know, it was kind of classic a, mystery. A, 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 yeah. a, a really classic mystery, you know, country house, strange conglomeration of people at a banquet, a poison garden, and somehow some people have been poisoned and others haven't. So, so was the feeding person? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Molly has, I mean, Georgie has a new chef that has oh. come from Paris, and he was wonderful. So the person who owns this 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 place has asked whether her chef could help cook for this fundraising <coughs> banquet. He does take Queenie along to be an assistant, but all she has to do is be an assistant, and she doesn't screw up in any way. <laughs> Very well. She's, she ends up being one of the people who's poisoned, so, you know. But stays alive. But stays alive. <laughs> can't quit, can't get her off. And then finally, what's up with your next World War II drama? Um, next big... Does anybody here read the big standalones, the World War II books? Yeah. Um, anyway, the next one comes out in August, and it's called The Paris Assignment. So I think you might get some slight hint of what that might be. I have to tell you that it takes place just outside Paris, but the, the marketing people said, no, that's the Paris of the <laughs> So it's um, about a woman who marries studies in France, meets someone, falls in love, marries, lives in France for years, comes back to England during World War II, very bad things happen, and she volunteers to go back to France. So finds herself working just outside Paris um, as a courier. And um, there are two parallel stories going through the whole book. So there's another parallel story happening somewhere else, and they both come together in Australia. 
can't draw them, so it's quite quite a big canvas, this one. Um, quite, it's quite harrowing to write, and I think it would be very harrowing to read, but it's a good story. Is it done? Oh yeah, it's, it's right. already done. It, yes, it's, um, look at the cover on Amazon already. <laughs> Fantastic cover. So is Georgie going to be in November then? Yeah, Georgie's in November then. I have to tell you with Georgie, I just literally about three weeks ago turned in the manuscript, and I was looking on the Amazon bestseller list, and I went, whoa, this book's at number 56, and I haven't written it yet. What comes first, the research or the idea? Like, do you research and get ideas, or do you have an idea and do research on it? Oh, it was a bit of both, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, we knew, we sort of knew the central locked room, someone going to die. Mm -hmm. But then Claire just reading the New York Times would say, hey, this is interesting about this mailbag, and then how can we incorporate that? Yeah. And, then, and we have to use the ferry somehow, yeah, because a lot of this, the theme of a lot of this is to do with the docks and corruption at the docks. Um, so Claire did a lot of background work on the docks. So um, yeah. so I think gradually we just incorporate the two, and then we do the research as we go along mm -hmm. too. So, you know, it, uh, I think we're not the sort of people who do the outline. We're very flexible to say, oh, this is good. Let's let's go let's over try here. This. Let's try this. Yeah. So I think it works better. I, one of the things we do is we create the characters and then we put them in a situation, and then they respond, hopefully as real people would in the situation. So the trick is setting up the situation to get the response that would naturally follow from that. And a lot of the mystery and the the figuring out of the mystery comes from that. Now the thing, once you once you create characters, you have no control over them. They, <laughs> they go where they want to, and you have to run behind and try and keep up with yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, there's a question at the back. Um, Claire, I'm just wondering how you manage your time, being a preacher and mom try to uh, get a lot of the collaborative writing done. And then um, during the school year, I mostly get up at 5.45, so I can try to get two pages done a morning before I go off and go to school. Because I find that I'm really tired. In the afternoon, my creative brain is done, and I can relax, but I, I can't really get good work done, so I need that time in the morning before I go off. And then weekends, of course, you know, I can but still just morning time. The afternoon is not great for me to write. Yeah. Claire comes, we, li we live in California during the summers, and Claire comes out right after school is over, and then we can sit and really brainstorm for a while. It was it was very daunting at the beginning, just sort of thinking, you know, would it flow? Would I would I spend all afternoon and have one page? But I've, I've actually found that it's similar to reading with me. I'm, I love to read, and I read really quickly, and when I'm in a scene and I actually know how it's gonna go, it goes really quickly. I've, like I've written 10 pages in a Saturday before when it's really flowing. Yeah, I have to uh, say that she does read very quickly. When two years ago, I was given the advanced copy of the Da Vinci Code, and I said, before it came out, I said, hey, this is, a, this is gonna be a big success, this book. And she, and about three, three hours later, she came back, she said, yes, it was quite good. I went, <laughs> <laughs> Remember we were going to do this? I, oh yeah, just a sec. 
And it's one o'clock. <laughs> okay, yeah, just a second. Hey, it's five o'clock now. <laughs> I, I think the other thing is she's always thinking about her work uh, as a writer. Not that she doesn't give everything she can to her kids at school, because yeah. that's a really important part of her life. Yeah. But sometimes she'll walk in the door and go, I can't talk to you right now. <laughs> I need something to write with. You know. But that's interesting. One thing about writing is once a scene is going well, I can think, you know, I, maybe I start at 8.30 or 9 in the morning, and I think, oh, I really could do with some coffee now. It must be mid-morning, and it's 2 o'clock. <laughs> you know, you have no idea that, that much time has gone. Yeah. Any more questions? Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.